Welcome to Nothing Ventured, a podcast exploring the stories that make the incredible world of tech and venture tick. Join me, Arish Shah, as I speak to the founders, investors, and ecosystem operators trying to make a dent in the future. Hello and welcome to another episode of Nothing Ventured with me, Arish Shah. Today, I'm super fortunate to have with me Nee Cleland. Nee is co-founder of Flare, a startup with a mission to help organizations measure their progress in building racially equitable cultures. Prior to launching Flare with his co-founder and cousin Daryl, they had built the UK's largest mobile app for young football players, Flare Football, with over 20,000 users across the UK and Ireland. Having made the difficult decision to discontinue the business in 2020 amidst the coronavirus pandemic, the cousins decided to solve the much larger and important societal problem, racial inequality. Welcome to the podcast, Nee. Ah, thank you, Arish. Absolute pleasure. Long overdue. I'm, I'm sorry it's taken it's taken so long to, to pin me down, but properly excited to, to, to do it today. No drama at all. It's, it's great to have you here. So I actually remember you re- reaching out to me during the pandemic when it became kind of clear that you wouldn't be able to sustain flair football. Talk me through what went through your minds and how or why you decided to pivot to building tech to solve this huge problem of racial inequality within the workforce. Yeah, I guess so much about being a founder is about being resilient. And when the pandemic hit and the the lockdown was announced, our app's usage went to zero overnight because kids couldn't play football and the app was all about tracking performance. We were fortunate enough, I guess, to be in a position where we had investors, we had a great team, and we had some cash in the bank. And that gave us some optionality. It was either quit, do something else, continue with the hope that football returns or do something completely different. And weighing everything up, we decided for that last option, we then started thinking about what problems we cared enough about to solve. And then a couple of months later, George Floyd was murdered. And my co-founder, who's also my cousin, both being black founders, we were doing a lot of kind of talking about being black in tech. And that led to a lot of introspection about our own lives and how race had impacted our lives. And it was just something that really touched home. Like it was something we cared deeply about. And then at the same time, we're noticing organizations come out with all these statements about what they were going to be doing. And we just felt it was all a bit rushed. Something that we really learned with Flair Football was unless you use data to guide your enhancements, your your product, your solutions, oftentimes you can come up with the complete wrong solutions. And we just felt that there was a parallel there with what organizations were doing doing like these really rushed action plans it it just felt disingenuine could they really have done the necessary data analysis to guide what were the right interventions to put in place so that was where the idea came about we really wanted to make that process of gathering data on racial bias more systematic allow organizations to essentially have metrics to measure progress because yeah i just it just felt very short termist they weren't really thinking beyond the next now of doing something now, as opposed to thinking, how are we going to prove in the future that, that this is going to work? So that's where the idea came about. And we decided to make that drastic pivot. So a couple of things that come out of that, right? So I think one of the things that I thought about a lot over the last couple of years was how we respond to things, right? How we respond to events. The obvious event that we all had to respond to was a pandemic. We've seen all sorts of knee-jerk reactions to that. 
some longer term thinking, some shorter term thinking, but where thinking has prevailed, it's been where there has been a use of systems of data of looking behind the numbers to understand the trends and and therefore make decisions, which is why we're sitting for the time being at the very least sitting in the UK with a relatively open economy. And I and I remember thinking at the time when George Floyd was murdered, whether or not it would create a real ambition to tackle the race problem, both in the US and overseas. And I think one of the things that struck me is that had we not been going through the pandemic, had people not been completely and utterly focused on what was happening around them, we may very well have just been consigned to the cutting room of history because there would have been so much other stuff going on. But I think the pandemic almost allowed for people to to pay attention. But what worries me is that now that things have gone back to normal, and that's a big statement to be making, but as people kind of get on with their lives, I wonder whether there is an element of the people that feel, well, okay, we we you know we stood up, we took our stand, we protested. Or I, I was talking to a founder recently who has built a marketplace for black brands, and and he'd noticed that like seventy percent of his users were white female, thirty five to forty five, or whatever the age group was. But I, I asked him very clearly the question: Are they are they just using the product once to feel good and feel like they've they've supported and, and and his data showed that often they were using the product to support you know the black community but is that sustainable and, and is it is that just an e-jack reaction right is there something that that people are just doing to feel good so the question i guess that comes out of all of that is do you think that the lessons have stuck or do you think that it is yet again another instance where a strong lesson has has been learned but things have gone backwards and now we've got to progress again to get to the next milestone mm, start it's such a good a good question so I think relative to other diversity inclusion waves I think the murder of George Floyd and the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement definitely had more staying power than other waves and you're right a lot of that was because we had two years of doing nothing loads of time to kind of think and reflect um, now we're coming out of that it's becoming more business as usual and I think the word that we really talk about a lot internally is pressure so what actually causes organizations, people to take these matters seriously. It's pressure. It's pressure from employees. It's pressure from customers, pressure from governments, pressure from Gen Z who are way more kind of socially conscious. And you're right. Like I I do think that some elements of that pressure are waning, but it's down to organizations like ourselves to reapply that pressure and make sure that it doesn't fade away. I think a really good organization that's been put in a lot of pressure is called 10,000 Black interns that have been really pushing for more representation amongst corporates, basically. And they are very much an advocacy brand and they've been really, really pushing. I think Flair is probably less so of an advocacy brand, but the way we apply pressure is through accountability and, and our data. I completely agree that there is a risk that this, this tide kind of settles, but it's down to the people who truly care to make sure that that pressure maintains. I think that's a really good way of thinking about it. It's sort of waves of pressure, right? If you think about the cadence of 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 these sort of events, with every wave you chip further away at some of that underlying prejudice and in doing so you you advance further. It's a shame that we even have to talk about it in that way, but that is the reality of where we are. In fact, you know, an estimated 200 billion dollars has been pledged towards tackling racism and you're driving the business to solve the problem now in the US. What what are the challenges to 
are launching out of the UK into the US? Because often you see businesses creating a beachhead in the US and then coming into smaller markets. I mean, obviously you also see it the other way around, but given the size of the problem in the US and the fact that I think in the UK, we still don't think of it as a problem. We don't think we have a problem with racism in the UK. It's, 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 it's definitely not as widely discussed or talked about as it is in the US. And of course, we don't necessarily have some of the same historical issues that, that the US has, but no doubt there are still problems here. And we saw it with, you know, in Bristol with an, with, with the pulling down of the, the Colston statue and, and so on and so forth. But how easy is it going to be to launch in the US from the UK? Mm, such a good question. So you kind of touched on the cultural nuances with regards to the race between, between the two countries. We're not taking the approach that our product is right for that market. Rather, we're revalidating having a lot of research calls to make sure that we understand that market, the drivers in that market. I think the kind of history of US race relations is is something that is studied quite well in the UK. Interestingly enough, when you look back at your history lessons, a lot of the time race is, is written from the perspective of the US. So I feel it's a region where I probably understand race relations much better than other countries that are outside of the UK. So that's helped. That being said, completely aware that there's differences. But then there's loads of other challenges about entering into the US, like operational challenges. So as a business, so many different things need to be considered, like the HR systems as you enter into different market, difference in contracts, differences in health insurance, all of these stuff, opening new bank accounts. It's just, there's a lot of kind of administrative things that I probably hadn't taken fully on board before making the decision. So that's been really interesting as well. So it's, it's going to be a, a massive challenge, but we have to approach it head on. So as someone who sits very heavily in the kind of finance realm of things, I can tell you that once you start creating nexuses in every state and having to file in every state, you start thinking, why did I, why did I try and launch here in the first place? And in fact, you're actually heading out, I think, to New York in not so, not so long. I think maybe the next week or so. Just quickly talk us through what that's all about, if you, if you could. Of course. The Department for International Trade has organized a trip for black founders. The aim of the trip is essentially to meet corporates, potential clients, investors. They've chosen, I think it's about 12 black led startups out of the UK. We're going out there for a week. And yeah, it's just, it's a really great opportunity to get in front of the market that we're about to enter. It ends with like a pitch day, which is useful for us because we're going to be raising most likely next quarter. And on a personal level, it's great for me because I get to spend some time out in, in New York before I'm planning on permanently moving there in a few months time. Amazing. I mean, good luck with the move to New York. Definitely interesting times out there. And I, I think, you know, these sort of initiatives by the Department of Trade and Industry can be really, really fruitful for, for, for people in the early stage ecosystem. And, you know, the fact that this is very specifically a kind of trade delegation specifically for black founders, I think is, is really great. I'm, I'm not entirely sure I've ever come across it before, actually, if I'm, if, if I'm being very honest. You talked about, you know, fundraising in the next quarter. You, you recently or last year, you raised capital from Hoxton Ventures and Samos Investments. Why did you choose them to partner with and how have they helped you in your mission? Because race has obviously been an incredibly important subject over the last couple of years. You know, w- what do you think needs to change in the venture ecosystem to ensure more black and, and minority founders get funded? Yeah, sure. So with Hoxton, we had a kind of a longer term relationship with. So we'd approached Rob when we were flare football trying to raise then, kind of told us that we needed way bigger user numbers. But then when I reached back out, he was very, I guess, impressed by the fact that we'd been so resilient and pivoted. So it was a bit of a, a no brainer to choose them. And they just have such a 
great reputation as a fund as well, seeding so many successful businesses. And I think another thing that's very useful is that they're American. We know that the US market is where we feel our biggest market will be. So it made sense to get to know the market through them and their network. And then Samos, I'd been following June Angelides for a long time on Twitter. I knew a lot about her. And when they they responded to my cold email, I met with the team. I was just really, really impressed with them as people. And it, that's super important because when you're raising venture funding, it's going to be a multi-year relationship. You need to know that you're going to get on with these people, not just on a business level, but on a personal level. And I think an extra thing that I couldn't, I couldn't ignore is it's so amazing to see a black woman being in such a powerful position in a venture fund. And yeah, that, that for me, I was biased towards, towards it for sure. And I guess touching on what you're saying about how, how do we get more black founders funded? Is that, is that essentially what you're saying? Or like, how do we get over those, those barriers? Yeah. So I think there's probably several parts of the question, right? Because it's very, very nuanced. But yeah, essentially within the venture ecosystem, we have probably a lack of, well, I guess this almost answers the question potentially in part, but we have a lack of black LPs. We have a, la- a lack of black GPs, so limited partners who fund the venture capital firms. We have a lack of general partners within the firms or partners themselves. And then that means that when you have, you know, systematically people who are excluded or are not included within the ecosystem from the top down, it makes it very hard to include people at you know the bottom, i.e. The, the founders that are raising. And I just wonder whether that's something that you found or you know, if you think there are other things that, that need to change maybe to, to ensure that you know whatever the percentage is, like I think 38 black founder businesses you know, receive venture capital in the UK over the last 10 years or something. And I'm sure some will correct me on those metrics, but you know, it is, it is disastrously low, whatever it is. Yeah, it's such a great question. I mean, it's such a systemic issue. It's, it's not going to be a quick fix. That's, that's a doubted. I think ultimately a lot of black business owners, what we want is funding. I think there's so, so much VC office hours for black founders that I just think is is very tokenistic. What VCs need to do is really work on how much capital they invest in black founders. And I think the ways that that can happen are things like ring fencing money to invest in minority owned businesses and by minority owned, I mean, ethnic minorities, because I think it's very easy to lump together all protected minorities into into a bucket. I think this is a very specific problem. I think it could even be as specific as a black founder problem and room fencing money for black founders. Aside from that, I think the investment decisions need to come from ICs with more diversity on them. So whether that is finding angel investors with experience investing who are black or even getting venture partners who are black, I guess people who are senior in scale-ups or founders if you can find them, there's not many to be on that th- that decision panel. I think that's important. Those are some of the starting points, but it's it's such a systemic issue that it's it's not it's not an easy an easy fix. For sure. And I think you talked about venture partners, scouts, those sort of programs that are now becoming more and more prolific throughout the ecosystem. Yeah, more common, I think are really important. We spoke to Arthur Farouk, who is the founder of Muslimic Makers, which is a community for Muslim creators effectively. And, you know, I think she's a scout with Ada Ventures. And we're starting to see a bit more of the proliferation of minorities. And I and I think I, I would 100% agree. I think there is a, a vast difference between exclusion for, let's say, females and 
as opposed to black people, as opposed to neurodiverse people, as opposed to gender diverse people, et cetera, et cetera. And I think to try and blanket cover every single quote unquote minority with the same blanket, as it were, actually does a disservice because then you have to start making trade-offs between those minorities as well. Okay, well, we've backed X women, we don't need to back a black founder now because we've we've met our kind of diversity quota, which is really problematic, I think. So just want to move on a little bit. So so you really only spent a couple of years fully, gainfully employed, I guess is is the is the right phrase. When you're an analyst at Goldman Sachs and before that you were studying towards your bachelor's at Warwick. And immediately afterwards you left to pursue a master's in technology entrepreneurship from UCL. And we're gonna bring one of your lecturers on Ichaso del Palacio pretty soon and then launch your first startup, which is kind of incredible because to move through school to university to effectively you know a couple of years in a role and then and then launching a, a, a startup is is pretty ambitious for most people I think but was building a startup always something you had planned on doing or was it something you kind of landed into and what do you wish you had known then that you know now such a good question so I wouldn't say I framed it as a startup because my dad is an entrepreneur he owned care homes so he was a businessman and I'd always thought I'd own a business Business. I don't know at what point in my life that word then turned into startup. I think it probably when I was at Goldman and starting to consider what my next step would be, I had like some health issues and I kind of needed to start planning. And that's when I started getting more interested in tech and working out like what was happening in this amazing ecosystem. And that's when I really started reading books like Zero to One and really started to use the, the terminology that we kind of hear in, in venture startups, etc. So yeah, I think it was never a, I want to be a founder who grows a venture backed company from an earlier, like, no, it wasn't that. It was more, I want the autonomy of owning my own business. And then that has somehow evolved into, oh my gosh, I'm on the venture track and I've got a startup that has this many employees and it's going to be a much probably bigger business than what my dad had. And yeah, it's, it's, it's just a sign of the times, I guess. Sounds like a very familiar story, certainly to me. So, I mean, I, I equally came up in an entrepreneurial family, albeit that, you know, we had, we had sort of businesses throughout sub-Saharan Africa and, and beyond. And what's really interesting to me is when I went into my family businesses, we are sort of third, fourth generation in, I would say we'd lost actually a lot of that kind of entrepreneurial spark in that, you know, we went into the businesses to manage the businesses, not to necessarily grow, albeit that, you know, we, we needed to grow, but we didn't have the skill set maybe for that, or that skill set had almost been educated away from us. And I find it really intriguing that, you know, that, that as you say, there was that desire to own a business. It didn't matter what the business was. It could have been a bunch of laundry mats. It could have been, you know, maybe a property portfolio. And let's face it, care homes over the last decade or so have become problematic in terms of, you know, funding from the state and, and the ability to make returns in that industry. And I, I, I know that all too well from some some of my family members and and some, some close friends of ours have been involved in that sector for a while. But yeah, I, I think it's really interesting to think about... I, and I haven't really thought about it before, but it's really interesting to think about that flip from what being an entrepreneur is, i.e. finding like a, a positive cash flow business model and just running that to becoming a quote unquote founder. And that terminology is also very different, 
right? Like a founder versus a business person. And equally, as you said, like the desire to go out and raise external capital, raise venture capital versus bootstrapping the business. And and, and of course, most businesses are bootstrapped, right? But we just don't talk about it in terms of bootstrapping. We talk about it in terms of that they generate their own cash or they've taken out some working capital loans and so on, right? And there's this whole strata of terminology that creeps in when you get into venture back, which makes it seem very different. But actually, when you boil it down, it's the same thing, right? Ultimately, you are trying to build a valuable business over time. The only difference, or rather the biggest difference, I think, is the timescales and the pressure that you put yourself under. Because obviously, when you take venture money, you have a defined period, realistically, like seven to 10 years to make a success out of your business, because that is that is a time frame under which most venture funds operate, right? So they'll be looking to exit within the next 10 years. So actually, that leads quite quite nicely onto to my, my kind of final question, which is that, you know, nothing ventured, this podcast is all about backing yourself, which is clearly something you're no stranger to whatsoever. What would you say to all the young people out there, and especially those that come from different backgrounds or cultures who are considering launching themselves into doing something entrepreneurial today? Hmm, very good question. I'd say speak with as many people as possible who you know or who you can access who have done something similar because it then becomes way, way less daunting. And we live in a world where access is so much easier than it seems. Like it's crazy how many people who are in really, really good places will respond to a Twitter tweet, for example, where you mention them. Next thing you know, you're having a conversation. Like you don't need to be limited by your personal network. If you send a very well written email to a founder or someone senior in a, in a business that you admire, you'd be really surprised how many people pick up that email because people love sharing knowledge and it's one of the beauties of, of this information age where information is literally at our fingertips and there's so, so much that you can learn from people who have done it before. And that really de-risks everything. It makes it way, way less scary. And I think for me, where I got that was mainly through my UCL masters. I met so many entrepreneurs through that year who had built businesses and it just made it all seem way, way less daunting. So yeah, that's that's something that I definitely advise. Yeah. The old phrase, you've got to network to get work, I think comes very much into play, but it's not just networking. I think you're right. It's very much, you know, something that we're able to do, as, as you say, in this information age is very quickly reach out to one, two, 10, 15 people and ask their advice, ask for, you know, something. And and it's incredible to me. I, I came to Twitter quite late in life over the last probably couple of years, if that. And I would say a good proportion of the, the guests that we've had on the podcast as an example have come through just cold outreaches on Twitter, which I've made. And these people had no reason... <laughs> literally no reason at all to come on the podcast, but they've, you know, generously given up their time and their energy and their thoughts to come on here. And I think that's a really powerful message. I think we had a guest on recently, uh, Renana Ashkenazi, who talked about how she failed to get into her masters and then sent an email back and, you know, told them that they were wrong to have rejected her. I think one of the things today is that we live in an age where it is easier to challenge authority, right? It is easier to say, hey, listen, I think you've got this wrong and here are the reasons why. You've got to back it up, right? I think we are moving fast away from the time where individuals can kind of lament their lack of agency because we all have so much agency now compared to previously. Now, that's not to say that there aren't challenges and that's not to say, as we've discussed prolifically, that you know people that come
come from underrepresented backgrounds don't find it harder in a effectively white male dominated society. But it has never been easier than today to try and change some of those things. So I think that advice is really uh, is is really pertinent. Is really incredible. Ni, I, I want to thank you for joining me today. It's been absolutely wonderful to have you on the podcast. I've got to say, congrats on everything you're achieving at Flair. I'd love to maybe have a follow up when when things are a bit quieter on your side, maybe, and understand a bit more about the business itself and you know the sort of metrics that you're tracking and and what success looks like. But for the time being, congratulations again, and and look forward to hearing more about your trip to to the states. And you know, sounds like you've got an adventure ahead of you in terms of the move. For our listeners, where can they find you? Are you on LinkedIn, Twitter? Where's the best place for them to look for you? Yeah, so it's Nee Cleland on LinkedIn. So that's N-I-I and then C-L-E-L-A-N-D. On Twitter, it's Nee's Tweets. And then on Instagram, it's Nee underscore Flair, F-L-A-I-R. Amazing. Thanks again for joining me today, Nee. It's been absolutely wonderful. Now, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Nothing Ventured, an Emerge One production. Follow us on social and at nothingventured.tech to make sure you never miss another episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can support us by giving us five stars on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners to understand the topics and guests that they'd like to hear about and from most. Drop us a message via the links in the show notes. And thanks again for your support.